0: This is Larry Lestig, and this is the third season of the podcast, Another Way. The subtitle for this season is POTUS One, and that describes our effort at Equal Citizens to frame a commitment to fundamental reform in this presidential campaign and to get the candidates to accept it. And so from that perspective, today's guest might seem a little bit strange. Billy Sutton is not running for president, as we discuss in the interview. He's barely old enough to run for president. He's not even running for any federal or state office right now. Um, Though, as you'll hear today, he did. He ran for governor in South Dakota. He's a moderate Democrat from South Dakota, but as you'll hear in this podcast, he has been in the front lines of a fight to reform state government and to get South Dakotans, a government that they feel could represent us or represent them. I claim a tiny slice of South Dakota because I lived there for about 10 minutes when I was born. Okay, as anybody listening to this podcast knows, this is something that I think we all need to think much more carefully about. If you're listening, then you're likely to think, like me, that nothing real is going to get done in America, certainly not with the American federal government, until we fix this corrupted government. Yet what's so incredibly frustrating and hard to understand is how difficult it is to get the politicians to talk about the issue and to take it up as an issue that's fundamental. That's something Billy Sutton did. And his extraordinary success, coming within three and a half points of beating a Republican to become governor in a state that Donald Trump won by 30 points, I think is a lesson, not just for South Dakota, but for the nation. Um, And of course, this lesson is not just for the politicians, it's for the media as well. We've had a presidential primary season so far, where not a single question has been asked of the candidates in any of the debates about corruption or reforming our broken democracy. So what explains that silence? And what can we do to change it? Anti-corruption has been the battle of Billy Sutton in South Dakota. That's the topic for this episode. Stay tuned for the episode following now. Welcome, Billy Sutton. I'm so grateful that you would take the time to talk to us in this obscure podcast from the East Coast. Um, I want to make sure everybody uh, knows a little bit about you because uh, perhaps outside of South Dakota, you're not as well known. Um, uh, so you're you're born in 1984 and you come from Burke, South Dakota, which... Uh, I looked up. I I actually was born in uh, Rapid City, although I lived there for about 10 minutes. So I don't really know anything about South Dakota personally. But I looked at Burke online uh, using the Google um, Street View. There are no tall buildings in Burke. It's a a very short (laughs) building kind of place. What's that about?
1: We're just a small town. It's interesting that we're Having this conversation even uh, about tall buildings, we actually just had a, uh, a small F1 uh, tornado come through our town of Bird. Wow. And uh, took out our probably our tallest buildings, which weren't that tall our school and uh, our lumber yard and our civic center. And so, at this small town of 600 people, um, rural, very rural South Dakota, and I was born and raised on our family ranch. And um, had to drive about 25 miles each way to go get to town, and uh, just grew up here and loved it, and, and knew I always wanted to come back after after college, and so this is where I ended up.
0: So you grew up in a ranch, and you became quite a successful. Um, I thought it was always bronco rider, but people, but it, it's described as a bronc rider. Is that right? Is there some difference that's between? Correct.
1: A, yeah, bronc rider is the term we use, I've heard it called bronco rider before, but we just call it bronc rider. Um, you know, it's, it's probably one of the purest um, rodeo events because it's kind of how rodeo began is, is with, uh, you know, rodeo or just regular, you know, ranch cowboys uh, having a competition who can ride a bucking horse the best. And, and it really has evolved into a sport where you can actually make a good living um, I fell in love with it at a young age. I started rodeoing as early as four and five years old. Wow. I didn't start riding bucking horses until I was about 14 or 15. And um, I had a good, good high school career. I finished second in the nation at the National High School Finals as a senior. And that got me a, a full ride to go to the University of Wyoming, where I competed there on the rodeo team, made the college national finals all four years, and bought my professional card. And started rodeoing professionally, and and uh, boy, my life really changed in 2007. Had a horse flip over on me in the shoot. I I shattered two vertebrae and had spinal cord damage, and was instantly paralyzed from the waist down. And that's probably where my story really begins. You know, it it, it uh, I kind of had my life planned out, but it certainly went in a different direction.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure that's where it begins, right? Because that's where it gets focus, I guess. Um, you're, yeah, uh,
1: maybe that's a maybe that's a better way to look at it. Um, you know, because honestly, I I had you know I knew what I was going to do and had it all planned out and wanted to be a, a world champion saddle bronc rider, and and that was my focus. You know, I was very focused on myself, very focused on what I was going to accomplish personally. And after my injury, that changed everything. And it, I talked about it a lot on the campaign too when I ran for governor in this last cycle. Is that it wasn't about it wasn't about me anymore. It was about the people around me and how I could have an impact because so many people gave so much for me to get to where I am today. Um, just the, their time, you know, their um, just investing in, in me as a person. People from all across the nation, especially in South Dakota, though, and. It kind of awakened in me a service over self mentality that I, I guess I didn't know I had, um, and and that's kind of how I got into politics.
0: So, so your accident happens in two thousand and seven. You don't graduate from Wyoming until two thousand and eight. So, does that mean you were professionally riding at the same time you were uh, an undergraduate?
1: Yeah. So um, I went to. I started. College in the fall of 2002, and one thing that's unique about rodeo is you can rodeo professionally and in college at the same time, which is different than probably any other sport um, at the collegiate level. And so I started rodeoing professionally after my sophomore year of college. So I was I was going to school, I was college rodeoing, and I was rodeoing rodeoing professionally when I could get away, and so that that became a bit of a challenge. Um, but then once I finished my four years of college eligibility for rodeo, then I, then I was going really hard rodeoing professionally. I was, I was only taking a few credits. I was traveling a lot, but I was still kind of get, trying to get my uh, undergrad done. And I was supposed to graduate in December of 2007. I got hurt in October of 2007, just as I was finishing my last semester. And so I had to drop my classes, picked them back up in January of 08. And then finished my degree in the spring
0: of 08. So then you returned to Burke from Wyoming. And um, I, I take it you go to work for a bank. But pretty soon afterwards, you're running for Senate. So did you did you have a focus on you know, the state Senate? Did you have a focus on running for politics for a while? Or was this just an, an obvious thing after what had happened to you?
1: Well, I don't think it was obvious. And I, and I really didn't have a focus on it either. Um I kind of took the perspective that I I, I had planned out my life so many different times that I, you know, I I saw how the future was going to go, or at least I thought I did, you know. And and what I realized after my accident is that you just have to take one day at a time. You know, you have to do your best today, um, and you can't control what's going to happen tomorrow, but all you can control is what happens right now and how you're going to react to different moments as well. And so I, I decided that I was just going to take every opportunity I could to give back. So with one door closed, another one opened is is kind of how I looked at it. And I got asked to run for the legislature, uh, in the, oh, January, February of 2010. And I had just gotten home the summer of 2009. And I wasn't home for that long. Now, We do have a background in politics. My grandpa was in the state Senate in the 70s. He ran as lieutenant governor candidate with a guy named Roger McKillips um, back in the late 70s. They lost that race to, if anybody's familiar with South Dakota politics, they lost that race to Bill Janklow. And Bill Janklow, that's when he kind of began his reign of uh, serving uh, two different eight-year terms as governor here in South Dakota. Uh, but then my grandpa kind of stepped out of politics at that point. He was killed in a farm accident in 1982, so I didn't get to meet him. But we do have a background in that. My grandma Ruth also ran um, a couple different times and for, for different offices, and so we do have a history in that. But I got asked, and, and if I wouldn't have been asked, I don't know that I would have thought about it. But uh, it was one of those deals where I just said, well, why not? You know, I, I saw what was going on in South Dakota um, especially how we've, you know, the state has treated education for a long time. And I felt like I could make a difference because I I saw how much education played a role in my life and the difference that it made in my life um, and compared to how my life would be if I didn't have a good education. Uh, the opportunities for me would have been limited.
0: So, so your grandpa and your grandma, were, were they also from Burke? Is it the same um, farm that or cattle ranch that they grew up on?
1: And Bonesville is where they were from, uh, but they're, they're very close together. They're you know, 18, 20 miles apart, and our ranch kind of is in between them. And so uh, we fell in the Burke School District, but my grandpa and grandma were kind of considered from Bonesville. But our, we still live on the home place that, that my grandpa's uh, dad kind of started. Hmm. And so it's uh, been in the
0: family a long time. Mm -hmm. So you're elected in 2010. You rise pretty quickly. You're an assistant minority leader, of course, of the Democratic uh, uh, caucus, which in the South Dakota Senate is not a huge uh, caucus. Um, And then you become a minority leader, and then you run for governor. Now, I want to make sure we have a clear sense of South Dakota before um, we talk about that run for governor. Um, Obviously, South Dakota is an incredibly Republican state. Um, I think only Alaska has um, voted for a Democratic president less than, uh, uh, than South Dakota has. Um,
1: <laughs> yeah, it, it's very... Um, I don't know. I think sometimes it's, it's uh, more independent than people realize. You know, uh, if you look at actual registered voters, it, it's about 46% Republican... Thirty percent Democrats, so there's a big gap there. But you have a big group of independents, about 24 percent registered in its independent. But to give you some context, I mean, South Dakota hadn't elected a Democrat governor since 1974, I think, which yep. was uh, Dick Knight. And so it, the governor's race for uh, for Republicans is pretty coveted. You know, it's it's um, it hasn't happened in a long time. Now, when you look at our Senate and House, um, at the national level in South Dakota, there was not that long ago we had Daschle, Johnson, and Stephen Hurst of Sandlin. Yeah, three so Democrats. All three of our, uh, two of our senators and our representatives were all Democrats. So um, there's been more of a history of electing Democrats there. There's not as much in the governor's the governor's race, and so that makes it all that
0: you know, more difficult, I think. Yeah. So so coming in um, uh, to this election, though, um, uh, I mean, you were running against um, a relatively popular woman who was running for governor. She became uh, the first woman to become elected governor, I think. Um, um, but still, it's a pretty um, heavy push because uh, Donald Trump had won in 2016, had won South Dakota by 30 points. Um, and so I, I imagine as you're stepping up to run, uh, there are many Democrats who are grateful that at least there's a Democrat running, but there can't be many Democrats who think you have a real shot. Is that, is that, was that the feeling you got?
1: You know, we thought that that would be the feeling um, just because it's been such a tough few cycles. To give you some context to that, I mean, when I got elected in 2010, I was the only Democrat to win a race that had a race in the Senate. Wow. And I came from a Republican district. Uh, You know, it it, it has not been, the cycle has not been good for Democrats since uh, the 2008 cycle was, was pretty good. Then 2010 came around, and it's been ugly. And so I think there is, there was always some pessimism, but I think, I, I, I got such a good team put together and we had such a good rollout. We created a lot of excitement. And there's a number of factors too. I mean, people were, people were really upset in South Dakota about a number of things that have been going on. And especially as it related to corruption scandals and things of that nature. I mean, honestly, the, the voters passed a corruption, uh, measure or an anti-corruption measure, I should say, um, on the ballot. In uh, 2016, and right within two months after that, the the legislature repealed it. Yeah, no,
0: you're getting, you're getting you're getting ahead of you're getting ahead of us a little there. bit. You're getting ahead. You're getting ahead here, Billy. You got to hold out You got to hold the bronco. I got I got to pull you back like a bronc like a bronco here. <laughs> um, okay, so because because I think people have got to understand the context before they understand how incredibly important. What happened was and your campaign was. Um, But the one other thing I want to make sure we keep clear here is, okay, you know, we've uh, my friend Beto O'Rourke was on um, our podcast earlier um, talking about his presidential run. Um, And of course, he was, uh, you know, such a superstar in the 2018 election, having, uh, you know, um, come within two and a half points of. Uh, beating Ted Cruz in a state where, you know, Donald Trump had won by just nine points. But what I when I looked at the at that election result, you know, what you did really stood out because you came um, not within two and a half points, you came within three and a half points. But that means you moved uh, 26 and a half points in your state um, compared to Beto moving just six and a half points. So the reason I think that's so important is if we're talking about what can rally America, Uh, which of course is a nation divided uh, between Republicans and Democrats and independents, but what can rally America? Um, What's so striking about what you did was that you obviously rallied an extraordinary number of independents and Republicans to join you as a Democratic candidate running for governor. And this ought to be a lesson that the rest of the nation Focuses more on because I think it's something to teach. Is it? Are you, you're going to agree with that, right?
1: Yeah, I think so. Um, we we it was an incredible race. I mean, we did have the when it was all said and done, we had the largest shift in the country of anywhere. I mean, it was amazing, uh, and it was over by over ten points more than the next closest state. The medium shift was and. I mean three of our counties were the biggest shifts of either party in the nation. Hughes, Stanley, and Dewey County were the biggest shifts, um, since the twenty fourteen uh, cycle I think. And so wow. you did see just a, a huge uh a huge movement that uh you know, I, I it was incredible. It was it was, uh, it was the frustrating thing is you come so close just to not quite be able to pull it off, you know, I mean we saw such a, we, but we thought from the beginning that we could win with the right campaign, and
0: you came close.
1: Yeah, I mean we did. We started, we started way down, and and over a year, over a year and a half time, we worked really really hard. We we um, were out meeting people and and just getting them to know you is is the challenge, you know, um, getting people to understand who you are and where you come from and and what you stand for and and once that occurred you just saw that shift and the momentum just continue to to gain steam and uh it was just a dang close race 51 to 51 48 and i mean i got more votes in the the gubernatorial election than a democrat had since 1970.
0: wow okay so let's understand um, the context of what makes your kind of campaign so attractive now so again, South Dakota is a one-party state. Um, I come from a one-party state, Massachusetts. It's one party the other way around. I think in one-party states, uh, there's a sensibility, not just in Republican one-party states, but in Democratic too, that the temptation to corruption in a one-party state is can be quite overwhelming because um, if you control everything, then there's not many... Who are going to be able to challenge you when you take advantage of your power? Um, we've seen that here in Massachusetts, and obviously other states like uh, Illinois have seen the same thing. Um, in in South Dakota, there were a couple pretty important scandals that I know of two, but there are probably others that uh, are, were significant. There was a scandal involving um, visas, the EB five visas, um, where a cabinet official had channeled a whole bunch of them to. Uh, one company that he, I guess he, I, I'm assuming he, maybe I'm wrong about that, went to uh, work for. Then there's something called the Gear Up scandal, where money meant for low-income high, high school, school students was channeled in a way that um, defeated its purpose for private gain. Um, these these must have been issues that most uh, Dakotans uh, were uh, quite upset about and aware of. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, that, that's what we certainly heard. And I was in the legislature when all those occurred, and it was very frustrating because not only were they scandals where where money was lost or embezzled or things like that, but there were actually loss of human life. Um, the individual you're talking about with the ed B. Five committed suicide. Um, the Gear Up scandal, uh, the individual that was involved in that um, committed murder suicide. He he killed his whole family and then themselves and then burnt his house down, and it was just devastating to see the the result of what could happen with corruption. Because um, because a lot of times I think when people think corruption, they just think well somebody took money, uh, but it was further than that. It was loss of human life that is just unacceptable. And I think it. You know, I said this a lot. I think it could happen with either party that is in power for too long. You know, it's not just a Republican problem or a Democrat problem, it's it's when one party controls power for too long that there are no checks and balances, there is no accountability. Um and that's when a lot of these things get out of hand. Yeah. And so, um we were we were fighting the system, um, in a big way in this race and I and the the thing that needs to be known is that a lot of Republicans felt the same way. Uh, that they were frustrated with what was going on and and upset that this would occur.
0: Yeah, of course, because, I mean, people differ on their values. They don't differ on this value. Um, And, uh, you know, you can be a conservative Republican and be as angry at corruption as a liberal Democrat, and there's nothing odd about that. I mean, you might have very different views about abortion rights or gun control or anything like that, but... um, but we ought to be able to agree on this. And again, I think that was the enormous potential um, that your campaign signaled. South Dakota um, had an opportunity, though, to to allow the citizens to step in and to try to wrestle back some of this control or to change the system because um, you have the initiative process. Indeed, South Dakota was the first state in the nation to adopt a citizen's initiative uh, proposal um, during the progressive era. Um, and so this fight against corruption really begins in 2016 with the initiative process, something called Measure 22 of the Anti-Corruption Act, which um, had passed by 515 um, or 51.6% of the votes against 48. And it did four important things. It had a publicly funded finance system, basically democracy dollars um, that you could use to give to candidates. It had an ethics commission to help run that program, it tried to block the revolving door, and it did something which so many people are surprised this is allowed. It capped gifts um, that uh, um, state officials are allowed to receive from lobbyists. Um, You know, there are many states where there's no limit on gifts. Pennsylvania is a state where you can give whatever you want to your state official, which obviously creates an incentive for corruption, um, as Pennsylvania has seen. Uh, But these four measures were quite boldly uh, put forward and passed and um, especially the public funding one, it was very surprising to see it pass so overwhelmingly. Um, uh, when when that passed, um, you know were you were you were you heavily involved in promoting that campaign or how was that campaign perceived in the state of South Dakota?
1: Well I think that after the, the EB5 and then the Gear Up scandal, uh, people just wanted, some accountability. They wanted some action taken, and the legislature wasn't taking action. The legislature was sweeping it under the rug and saying, you know, no problems, nothing to see here. I should say the establishment of the legislature, not not all legislators because myself and others, as well as some, you know, of my Republican colleagues were were upset about this and what was going on, but the, the folks in power um, didn't want to see anything done. And so, uh, you know, the, the ballot measure circulated and, uh, you know, I've always been a supporter of the, the will of the voters. And when they passed it, uh, we said, okay, like this is, this is what the voters wanted. They, they want a, uh, they want campaign finance reform. They want limits on lobbyist gifts. They want an ethics commission. I mean, they wanted all these things. And so, we went into the next legislative session thinking, you know, that the people have spoken and then to watch the the establishment take that and just dismantle it um, and just repealed the whole thing. Uh, They they threw the whole thing out and um, cobbled together what they viewed as some replacement measures that were watered down and, and did not address what the voters wanted, especially the campaign finance reform piece. I mean, it's kind of a wild west out here when it comes to, to, you know, giving money to legislative campaigns and whatnot. And, you know, that, that was one of the more frustrating things for
0: me. Yeah. So, so the repeal is uh, is lightning fast. I mean, it's it, the governor signs the repeal bill on February second, twenty seventeen, which means it's you know basically a month since you guys come back and um, in January, and uh, and it's pretty overwhelmingly passed in the Senate. You're one of eight um, uh, eight legislators. There's some Republicans um, who vote to resist it, but m- even more striking is that they declared it. Um, the product of a state of emergency. And and the reason that was important is if they called it a state of emergency, they could block the citizens from repealing their repeal, which is a kind of people's veto, which in Maine, there was a people's veto of the legislature's veto of their rank choice voting proposal. But that was made impossible by um, what the legislature did in 2017. So it's not just We're going to repeal what you did. We're going to tell you, just shut up. We're not going to let you actually even speak back to us. Um, And when that happens, you know, I read about it. I just can't believe that politicians can get away with that kind of behavior to the citizens. I mean, there must have been an outrage uh, expressed across the state when that happened.
1: Yeah, I think that we definitely saw that. I mean, a lot of people showed up to testify. In opposition to that repeal, and it it was a very frustrating time in my uh, political career. You know, I've I've worked, I've I've worked across the aisle on pretty much every issue you could think of here in South Dakota to find common ground to bring people together. But that became such a divisive move that it was it was hard to it was hard to stomach. And honestly, that that repeal is. Probably the biggest reason that I, you know, that I decided to get into the governor's race is because I just sat there and said, you know what, the, the people aren't being heard. You know, they, they, they passed the measure on the ballot and the legislature is not listening to them. We need checks and balances here. Today. The governor should have stepped up and, and vetoed that repeal, but you know, signed it and, and moved on. And... Uh, I just didn't think that was right.
0: And, and did your opponent in the campaign defend the repeal?
1: Not that I remember. She, she was a beneficiary of, of the repeal to, to a certain degree. Um, she didn't know it at, at the time. So once it passed, there's, there's canvassing that occurs before it actually takes effect. So it's a, usually about a seven-day window from when something is passed on the ballot to when it actually takes effect. And both um, Congresswoman Gnome and uh, her primary opponent, uh, Attorney General Jackley, moved uh, a whole bunch of campaign money into their governor's race account hmm. from political action committees and from Congresswoman um, uh federal campaign committee. Because what IM22 did is it limited the transfers from Federal accounts or tax to five thousand dollars, and so she was able to move like one point six million, and he was able to move just short of a million dollars into their governor's race campaign account, <laughs> which they then used the campaign on.
0: Yeah. Now she had been she'd been in Washington for a while, right? Christine Noam had been a um, pre- pretty significant figure in 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 Congress. Um, uh, so she she decided to run for governor. And then obviously you saw that she needed to make this change quickly because um, nobody expected uh, there would be such a quick repeal, I guess. But, uh, but
1: well, it, it shows you that, that she was thinking about running for governor long before yeah. she, had, she got elected to, uh, to Congress for her fourth term in that 2016 election. And within six, five, six days, she announced for governor because she had to move her money over. And so that was, um, I think a lot of people felt that that was disingenuous, too. Uh, but, you know, it is what it is. Um, and then the it turns out she probably wouldn't have had to do that because the legislature repealed the whole thing, yeah. which removed those transfer limits. And uh, it's just <laughs> interesting to see how that that shook out. Um, but people were upset. On both sides of the aisle were upset about the repeal. And we're upset about—I um, I heard a lot of people would even said, you know what, I didn't vote for IM-22, but what the legislature did was wrong in repealing that." Yeah, that. You know, the, the people spoke.
0: Yeah, no, I want to talk about your campaign in one second, because I think that's the most interesting part of this story. But um, uh, given what you'd expect uh, in the public's reaction to the legislature basically telling the public it didn't know what it was talking about— um, I find kind of surprising that in 2018, in a year where, you know, you come within a razor's edge of uh, uh, of beating uh, a Republican. In 2018, uh, Amendment W, which attempted to revive ethics reform or uh, anti-corruption reform, um, uh, actually failed on the ballot. Um, and it failed by about the same percentage that it uh, won the other way around. Um, uh, so how do you understand that failure? It's not your responsibility, obviously, so I'm not asking you to defend it personally. But but what do you think happened? Why didn't people rally to, to affirm what the people had done before?
1: I think that second round, it was a constitutional amendment rather than an initiated measure. And I think you'll find in South Dakota that South Dakotans are pretty, um, pretty protective of, of the Constitution here. Uh, this, this, you know, the state constitution is what we'd be talking about. And I think that was just enough of the difference uh, that people were just people are just more hesitant to change the constitution than they are to change, you know, a, a state law through an initiated measure.
0: So um, so was it originally controversial or originally not controversial and then became controversial because the campaign focused on the idea of amending the constitution or was it from the very beginning just a mistake?
1: I don't know if I'd say it was a mistake or not. I just, I just think that overall, voters um, are, were just more hesitant with a constitutional amendment, and it was a little bit uh, different than the original I am twenty-two. Yeah. But um, it was just a different cycle too, and it, it's just hard to it's just hard to know what exactly happened throughout that. And I probably didn't. Uh, you know, I was I was so focused on our campaign that there were there were several different measures, and that's part of the problem too. Is when you get multiple measures on the ballot, uh, there are a faction of people that just say, "Well, I'm just going to I'm just going to go vote no for everything." Yeah. You know, I I don't want to I don't you know, there's too many for me to worry about, which shouldn't shouldn't be the case, but the reality is that, that sometimes happens.
0: Yeah, I mean, there was a very interesting uh, measure on the ballot. I don't think this will withstand constitutional scrutiny, but it but it basically blocked the ability for out-of-state money to be used in a ballot measure, which that provision won. Um, that was controversial because, of course, a lot of the support for Amendment W um, came from out-of-state. So this was almost like that people were saying they don't want out-of-staters participating in the amendments of the South Dakota Constitution. Maybe that worked against it as well?
1: Yeah, I think that's possible because a fair amount of funding was from out of state, and and um, I, I think that did occur, which is which is also interesting. I think if um, if probably the the majority of South Dakota, um, you know, knew how much out of state money went into to my opponent's uh, gubernatorial campaign, they might rethink that support as well, uh, because over half of uh, Congresswoman Gnome's support came from out-of-state. And I think right at 90% of my financial support was from right here in South Dakota by individuals. And um, there was a big difference
0: there. Yeah, so, um, and the out-of-state support she received, was it from individuals, or was it, what was the nature of that support?
1: Uh, a lot of PAC, a lot of PAC money. Republican Governors Association came at the end, in, in at the end with a lot of uh, financial support for her. I think a couple million in the last, uh, you know, two or three weeks. Which in South Dakota, you know, you can run a very competitive race for a couple million dollars. We have the cheapest media market in the country, and um, so you can run a very competitive campaign for a smaller amount of dollars. You know, I, I think uh, I raised more than. Well, more than two times what any other Democratic candidate had ever raised in South Dakota, and then uh, I had raised more than any other Republican candidate, with the exception of my opponent in that cycle, Congressman
0: And and so the money that you were raising from in the state—these are, you know—are you raising it online? Or are you raising it face to face? How's that? What's the dynamic of fundraising in South Dakota? Well, like? It
1: was a combination. We raised a, a lot of money online. Um, we raised a lot of money through you know, just grassroots efforts, uh, mailers, um, you know, in-person events and things like that. But I mean, our our we did not have a lot of large donors. You know, it was it was just mm-hmm. a lot of people that were given you know 50 to 100 bucks at a time, and and just saw the opportunity for change and wanted to be a part of it. It was very much a grassroots effort. Uh, we had a lot of donors that were given you know five, ten bucks a month throughout the campaign. And and um, it all adds up and made a huge difference in, in the race.
0: Those repeat donors are the greatest gift that I think the Lord has ever come up with because those people, I mean, they <laughs> yeah, commit yeah. early on and they stay committed. Uh, we have a number supporting our work, and I can't say how grateful I am for that.
1: Um, it makes a huge difference because you can actually you know, it's, it's ongoing money that you can count on. And yeah. so you can build such a better base for your campaign knowing that, that that's going to continue to occur. And, and so it was really helpful.
0: Yeah, the planning is possible. Okay, so, I mean, you you, you ran an incredible campaign in, in all sorts of ways. I think if people see your media and they see the strategy and they see the way you raised money, all of that's great. The part I'm most interested in, though, is is not so much what you said, because I think you said the right thing, um, you know from my perspective, absolutely, about the need to restore trust and integrity to government. What did you hear? Um, when you were out on the on the road and people heard you talk about this issue, what did you hear? What did you hear especially from people who didn't necessarily share your political values? Uh, how How did you feel this resonate in the in the course of the campaign?
1: Yeah, I think people are looking for somebody that's real. And authentic, and that understand our underlying values, and and that's that's really all I know. You know, I, you know, I come from a ranching background where you worked hard till the job got done. You never quit, never gave up. You did it with honesty and integrity, and that really resonated with people because I am who I am. I'm real. I, I you know, do what I say I'm gonna do, and my word is good. And so that's worth a lot to, uh, a lot of people and it's, it's very, very, culturally, um, important to South Dakota. And that's what I heard from a lot of people is they say, you know what, you're, you're real, you're authentic and we trust you. We trust you to do the right thing. Because that's a lot of it is, is just building that trust and, and then making sure you don't, you, you always live up to that. And that's just the values I was raised with. And so it came very it came very um, natural, I guess
0: you could say. OK, so that's you. And that's obvious um, um, from your background that you would be able to claim that. Um, what's not so obvious is how people in the state of South Dakota would think about their government. You know, we, when you think about other states, like Colorado, for example. We're going to talk to Mike Johnston, who's going to run for Senate in Colorado. Um, Mike Johnston um also ran for Governor. He wasn't anywhere as successful as you were. Um But one thing he said to me, which is very interesting, is that though people in Colorado are quite angry about the federal government. they would think the federal government's deeply corrupted. they They don't think that about their own government. They think their own government's, um you know, it's not like it works perfectly. It's government. but but it but it's not corrupted in the same way. But what's striking in South Dakota, was it obviously your message must have resonated because many people um, were just, you know, disappointed or um, let down with the idea of uh, how government was working in South Dakota? Is, did you hear that when you talked to people around the state?
1: Absolutely. I mean, that was the number one issue that people were concerned about was corruption in state government with with all, and as we discussed, with, with the loss of life and the, the money that disappeared and all those things that... You know, really, our media exposed a lot of that. And so people, people got to see it, um, reported. And they were very upset about that. And I, I think that's probably the biggest reason that we got as close as we did to winning this race because they, they viewed me as a, as a departure from that corruption. And, uh, that was the number one issue in the campaign. And, uh a big part of the plans that we laid out in how we addressed that, especially as it came to campaign finance reform and and gift limitations and, you know, making sure we had a had an ethics commission that was gonna address the corruption that has gone on and, and really probably the other factor is just um a change within state government to have new leadership and to bring in new people that, you know, maybe hadn't been there for thirty or forty years. That's part of the problem is you have people that are working in state government that have been there for you know forty years that do things the same just because that's the
0: way they always been done. Yeah, yeah. So um, when you when you would uh, have your e- exchanges with Congresswoman Nome, uh, did this issue come up? Was this an issue asked about in debates? Um, and and how how did she distinguish herself from from the way you were uh, describing the issue?
1: Well, honestly tried to paint herself as a change agent in that degree as well, it, it, I feel like it largely fell flat because she was trying to say that she wasn't part of the establishment. You know, She wasn't part of the, that club. And, and um, you can say one thing, but the reality is that you know, she is a part of the establishment and you're not going to see any change from that. But she was putting out some proposals and initiatives, you know, some sunshine law things and things of that nature where she's promising to have an open and honest government, but um, so far we have yet to see any of that change uh, within that administration.
0: And d- you don't expect that change to come in this administration.
1: I don't expect to see it, but I hope I hope I'm proved wrong on that. Um, it was the number one issue in this campaign, and the, the voters deserve to have that openness and honesty in their government. I mean. State government should be as as honest and open as the people of South Dakota are, and they're not getting that right now. Uh, and I, I hope that changes. So I hope they prove me wrong.
0: Okay, so you're you're not a candidate running um, for president. You you're barely old enough to run for president. Um, and this has been a series. Okay, yeah. It's been a podcast um, about this issue in the presidential race. But so I'm talking to you not because I'm you know trying to recruit you to run and. Um, and you're not actually an announced candidate for anything right now. I mean, you left the government in the beginning of the year, and uh, you now have a, a foundation, I guess, or an institute that's focusing on um, recruiting young people into doing good in, in South Dakota. But if you were, you know, if, if, um, if, if the leaders of the Democratic Party called you and said, uh, uh, Mr. Sutton, what did you learn? Um, uh, when, you, when you tried to persuade a state that had gone for Donald Trump by 30 points about what kind of message a Democrat could be promoting that might actually work. How would you, how would you persuade them that what you did was a strategy that might have legs, not just in South Dakota?
1: Yeah, I think there's a number of things I would tell them. Um, number one, that candidates need to listen. Uh, too often I think you have candidates that, uh, go out and, you know, use, use polling to, to push their message or, or whatever it is that they're going to focus on because of polling or because of preconceived notions. But the, the biggest reality is that you need to listen to the people. And that's what we did when we kicked off the campaign. We, we held a listening tour across South Dakota and invited people to come, uh, regardless of party affiliation. And I literally just sat and listened. I gave a little bit of my background of who I am and where I come from, and then I said, this race is about you. I want to hear what's important to you. And it's more challenging than you think it is to just sit there and listen and not respond um, to what people are saying, but it, it gave us a really great insight as to what people actually want from their government and the, the, the biggest takeaway from all those listening sessions that we held all across South Dakota was that people wanted uh, a government that they could trust. And they wanted someone that was real and authentic that uh, would actually do what they said they're going to do. And that's the advice I would give to any candidate is do more listening than talking and address the issues that people care most about. And right, at, least, at least in South Dakota, that was corruption. And I think people feel that way across the country as well, just from what I've read and seen um, throughout uh, other states.
0: Do you think South Dakotans have a better view of the federal government than they do of their state government?
1: I think in South Dakota, probably. Uh-huh. Um, I, I think that that's probably the case, especially when you see... Um, you know, how the numbers have gone uh, recently with, with past elections. I think we in South Dakota, people feel like um, their representatives are doing a, a good job in fighting for them. Um, I think they still think there's there's some you know, some corruption, but it, it's largely in South Dakota, revolves around state government, uh, is what we saw.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the and the fight um, against uh, corruption in the state government. I, I think I like the way you framed it. It's not so much a fight against Republicans as a fight against establishment or a fight against those that have an old way of doing things and um, and want to profit from that. Um, and you know, of course, your state has a strong history of of these kind of strong-willed resistors of corruption. I remember um, Larry Pressler, right, um, who was. A senator. He's a Republican. And uh, he was um, maybe he was a congressman when this happened. But anyway, there was a scandal called the Abscam scandal. And he was, uh, they tried to set him up to, to get him to take a bribe. And there's a really great <laughs> video of him just uh, almost outraged at the idea that um, somebody would ask him to take a bribe. Yeah.
1: Um, well, you know, Senator Pressler actually uh, endorsed my campaign <laughs> out here in South Dakota. And um we did an event where a bunch of Republicans endorsed me and and Independents as well, and uh, I think that's you know part of why you saw just our momentum uh, throughout the campaign increases because uh, I wasn't focused on party affiliation. I never have been uh, because when you look at the corruption issue, it's not a, it shouldn't be a partisan issue, and it's not. Uh, but I think candidates need to look at how they can bring people together, not seek to divide. And that was at the base of what my campaign stood for, is how do we work together? How do we find common ground to address the issues that people care most about? And that was the corruption issue. And so I think it's a mistake for people to, to demonize one party or the other, uh, because the party doesn't always represent. Um, all the people as a whole. It is it, oftentimes about our, our base values and our core beliefs, and it isn't just Republican versus Democrat, or or Independent for that matter. It's about bringing all people of all stripes together to solve a problem. And I think we've lost a lot of that. We, On both sides of the aisle, people seek to demonize the, the party as a whole, which then becomes personal to a lot of people. And if you demonize somebody, you can't get them to the table to have a conversation because most of these people are really good, hardworking, honest people that um, just feel like they're getting attacked all the time.
0: It's, a gr- it's such a great message. And it, it's what makes me so anxious about this election cycle right now, because, you know, obviously the president has done a lot to divide uh, the nation and divide us in ways that many of us thought was not even possible to find those lines anymore. But there it is. We're divided on race, we're divided on immigrants, and, and we're divided in a partisan way. And one way to respond to that is to play the same game, to continue to emphasize just how different we are, how far apart we are from the other side, and as you say, to demonize the other side. I've always thought another strategy that might be more effective would be to emphasize what we all actually do agree about. And, you know, that might not be some of the things that we people from the Republic of Cambridge care most about, like healthcare or um, uh, issues like that, it, it, instead it's the issues that you are talking about. You know, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat or an Independent in America, you think the federal government um, is filled with the kind of corruption we need to we need to address. Um, and and I really hope that there are more from the national party who hear the message that you were delivering in South Dakota and ask themselves, wouldn't it be easier to try to rally America to something that you don't have to convince them of, rally them to something they already believe, which is that every American deserves a government they can trust?
1: Yeah, I, I think that there was a time when we started that conversation with what we agreed with rather than what we disagreed, because. I certainly found that during my time in the legislature that as South Dakotans, and specific to South Dakota, we agree on 90% of the issues. I would say here in South Dakota, but too often the conversation starts with the 10% that we disagree on, and then we lose sight of that that there's this common ground and commonality, I guess, that that makes us. Who we are to our fabric. And I just get so frustrated when I, it's easy to, it's easy to take that path of, you know, rallying your base by, by, uh, you know, criticizing a party or an individual when really we agree on way more than we disagree on. That's where we should start the conversation. Because if, if we don't do that, we're not going to be able to solve problems. That we actually have. We're not going to be able to find common ground and build trust. And that—that's how you solve problems. You build trust with with folks that maybe disagree with you on some things, but you find ways to work together. Um, which is what I've done in the legislature, and what you know if I ever am in public office, then you know, I'll continue to have that same belief.
0: Billy Sutton, I'm grateful for your time and your leadership, um, and I uh, and I wish you luck in in your work in South Dakota. And I hope we see you more outside of South Dakota than we have so far. Um, thank you so much.
1: Yeah, thank you for your time and for your work. Really appreciate it. And um, you know, we'll see we'll see what the
0: future holds, one day at a time. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Billy. Thank you. These podcasts are produced by EqualCitizens.us. You can find us on the web at EqualCitizens.us, and you can find this podcast at slash another way. There's a place on that page to share the podcast and to give us feedback and to give us your ideas. Please do both. Please share this podcast broadly, whether or not we can say that a tree falling in the woods when no one hears it creates any sound. We're pretty sure that a podcast that is not shared does not produce any change. Many of the ideas discussed in this season of Another Way are also discussed in a new book that I'm publishing this fall. They don't represent us. You can, as in you definitely should, pre-order one, or I I think 50 is a better number than one, Um, right now at hc.com slash represent us. That's hc, not for Hillary Clinton, but for Harper Collins. Thanks very much. Stay tuned for the next episode. This is Larry Lessig.